everyone, and welcome to MLS Assist, a podcast created to give insight into Major League Soccer's on-field action. I'm your host, Joe Lowry, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jordan Angeli. Jordan, we are officially in the knockout stage of the MLS's back tournament. Feels good. Yesterday was weird, Joe. Not talking to you and not watching soccer games. It felt weird. It's nice to be back. <laughs> I didn't realize how much, even with just that one day, I missed soccer. I was excited to sit down and watch the first game of the knockout round. Orlando City's 1-0 win versus the Montreal Impact. That game was before the Philadelphia Union's 1-0 win over the New England Revolution. But Jordan, before we dig into those games, we've got a couple things to get through. A couple housekeeping things. One for us is kind of big, right? We spent the last, I think it was 16 days going through daily episodes. Again, we had that that Friday off, but we went through a lot of soccer games. Listeners, if you've enjoyed this show, if you've liked what we've been bringing to the table, tell your friends. We would really appreciate you guys reviewing or rating or subscribing wherever you get your podcasts and maybe letting a soccer friend of yours know about us. Yeah, we love it too. We see you guys doing it on Twitter and adding us into your tweets when you're talking about the game. And Joe and I are just like, wow, this is cool. So as as much as you guys can share, it really means a lot to us because um, we're enjoying what we're doing. And I I think from what we hear, some of you are enjoying listening to it. So yeah, (laughs) sharing is always appreciated and rate and review and do all that fun stuff. So thanks so much. That's housekeeping thing number one. Housekeeping thing number two is less to do with us and more to do with a coaching change that we had in Atlanta. Frank DeBoer is out as the manager of Atlanta United. They'll be using an interim head coach during this time after sort of a mutual parting of ways. But was it, you know, that sort of situation? Frank DeBoer is gone. Jordan, we want to briefly address this before we get into our own games today. I wanted to sort of answer the question, what was Frank DeBoer trying to do? And why didn't it work with Atlanta? I just felt like things weren't broken in Atlanta. And when you come in there, so there was a change in coaching staff. Tata Martino leaves, Frank DeBoer comes in, but you didn't have to change so much as to how the style of play or what the style of play was for this Atlanta United team. I think Frank DeBoer tried to instill so many different different looks defensively and like try to change who they were defensively when that really wasn't what was broken, right? They were, they were a team that relied on doing a good job defensively and then breaking out and going in numbers and having fun and being an attacking on the front foot type of team. And to change that, it almost felt like, why? I keep running that over in my head as well. It wasn't broken. What Atlanta United had was great, and it might have been impossible to replicate under a coach who's not Tata Martino. So I want to set that aside and even give DeBoer a little bit of credit because his vision for Atlanta was fine. The idea of wanting to be solid defensively and wanting to keep possession and move it systematically up the field and then break into space, that's something that a lot of coaches want to do. It's a fine idea, but I I still keep coming back to the idea that it wasn't necessary. It wasn't useful. The players clearly didn't like it. It wasn't how they wanted to play soccer. And that ultimately means he's not in charge of Atlanta anymore. And the last thing I want to say is there are we you've talked about it numerous times is there's personnel changes that has happened, especially in this last offseason. And we have seen teams adapt in this time off due to COVID and do different things. And I don't feel like Atlanta adapted at all. And they just don't have 
the way that they were trying to play, it didn't seem like the puzzle pieces they had fit that puzzle. Mm. And it's okay to sh- to change that around and make um, look at the roster that you have and make those pieces fit into something different. And so I think just the lack of being uh, being able to problem solve right now when things weren't going right, I think that was maybe the cherry on top. The straw that uh, broke the camel's back. What's the better <laughs> one to put on there? I think I think the straw breaking the camel's back is very fitting in this instance. Um, I'm intrigued to see who Atlanta United bring in as the next manager. If they if that process goes quickly or if it takes longer to locate the right guy, maybe after Frank DeBoer wasn't the right guy. But that's it. That's Atlanta United. They're no longer playing in this tournament. They can sort of sit on the back burner for a little while. Moving on to the first game of the knockout round, the round of 16, Orlando City's 1-0 win over the Montreal Impact. Jordan, I'm going to leave it up to you on this. Where do you want to start? Do you want to start with Montreal? Do you want to start with Orlando? Okay, I'm going to pick the team and you're going to start with your... Perfect. Okay, I'm going to pick Montreal. They're first in my notes in in full transparency. I, I, what I, the biggest thing, the biggest bird's eye view takeaway I have from the Montreal impact in this game is that when they came out in, in that 4-1-4-1, another four at the back shape from Thierry Henry in the first half, they could not figure out how to pressure the ball at all defensively. Did you notice that, Jordan? Yeah. Well, Orlando definitely noticed that they were just dribbling right through them. Orlando almost let off the game. It was a few minutes in with a 17 pass sequence. That oh my let gosh. them get a really nice chance. It's Pereira in the box off of a Nani flick. Montreal couldn't pressure. There was another sequence in the 45th minute that I have written down where the impact lose the ball off of a throw-in on the near sideline. Orlando City's Mendez ends up with the ball and there are three Montreal players right around him. None of those players step to him with any level of aggression. Mendez plays it even further towards the sideline to Juan and none of the impact players move. They're still standing there. All Juan has to do is play it into the middle of the field to start switching the point of attack. It's a few more passes, and Orlando nearly scores. It's that near offside, was it offside, wasn't it offside. It all starts with that lack of pressure on the sideline. That's where you want to pressure. That's yeah. the spot. If you're ever going to pressure, trap against the sideline. That might be the best place to do it, and the impact couldn't in that original shape. Yeah, I have that same thing written down. I felt like that uh, play was... That was the one where they got called for offside. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, it is a throw-in. This was what ticked me off about that play. It's a throw-in in your defensive third. I'm not kidding you, Joe. Six Montreal Impact players went to go help and get the throw-in out of the defensive third. Six. You need one person. Throw it to their foot. Have them clear it first time out of that space. Since there was six players out there, it just made it like perfect for... Orlando to create something out of there because once they won the ball, you just switch the point and bring it back and then you're able to attack, right? Because you shifted everybody. I just think that is ridiculous. So um, rant over. But yes, I don't think Montreal understood how to press, but I also think it was like they didn't try to. Yeah, I don't think you're wrong at all there. Which felt weird. Like, I, I wrote down who I thought, I think he did a better job in the second half, but... When Yama, I, th- I thought he needed to come out of the game. Hmm. The- Orlando was just playing right around him. He was like standing still a lot of the time. And they were playing in those two spaces right next to him over and over and over again. And so I, like I, the shift in tactics really helped. But man, that r- first half was rough for Montreal. 
I said after the Impact played DC United in, in their last match of the group stage that I thought the four at the back shape gave them a little bit more stability. Mm-hmm. I want to completely retract that. I do not think this <laughs> okay. team knows how to play with four defenders. I thought the look might be interesting with those four at the back. But when Thierry Henry made the shift to a 5-3-2 at halftime with a sub bringing on a center back for a Quanquo, that made a huge difference. You could see mm-hmm. the comfort level. I feel like that's lazy analysis, but I really don't think it is. The comfort that the Impact have playing in that shape that they started out with under Henri is clear to see in how they defended, and it made life a little bit more difficult for Orlando City, even though they did get that goal in the 60th minute. Well, it makes total sense, and it's not lazy analysis because that's something that they worked on for a month and a half before season started, and then really that's the most training that they had together this whole time, right, is training in that system. So it makes sense that, that they would feel more comfortable in that. Okay, let's flip the script here. Let's talk Orlando City, and I want to start with the goal. Okay. Let's let's go through and break it down. It's Pereira who plays it up to Nani in the 60th minute in the attacking half. Nani then flicks it forward and tries to connect with Mendez. Instead, it's Fani who gets there and pokes it back to Diop, or at least to where he thinks Diop is going to be, but he's not there. Diop thought that he was going to have to come out and deal with Mendez's shot to try to block that angle. That miscue means that Fanny's ball backwards rolls past Diop to the side of him and right to Akindele, who scores one of the easiest goals he will ever score. Alejandro Moreno was saying he would score a thousand goals like that if that was in his career. I'm like, I would too. <laughs> Joe, you would too. I mean, that was, you didn't, you didn't have to do anything. He didn't have to do anything to score that goal. He just had to be there, right? Um, yeah, unfortunate. And I, I did wonder because Diop looked like, so unsure, like his footing was wrong. And it it was, it was a, a misplay there by the defender. I think just trying to toe poke it away that off footed him. But um it kind of felt like Orlando after that first half, like that was just inevitable, especially with Nani. Nani playing in that half space. He is just the flick from him was brilliant. Can we talk about Nani for a second? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, perfect. Okay, let's do it. (laughs) For some reason, I feel like I never talk about him enough in this Orlando City team, but tonight we saw exactly why he can be such an effective attacking player for them. On this goal, we get the flick. It's to Mendez, and it doesn't quite land, but it's the speed of thought and the quick touch that I kept noticing from him over and over again. There were two sequences in the first half. One on that 17-pass sequence at the beginning of the game, where he just sort of flicks it back to Pereira at the back post after drawing two defenders to him, And then there's another one in the box where he's combining a little bit with Chris Mueller and Mueller just plays it to him and Nani plays it right back behind Corrales for the Montreal impact. And that is what allows Mueller to get that shot that's blocked and it goes for a corner kick. But the idea there is what I kept seeing. It's Nani being unselfish with the ball, drawing attention and then quickly providing for teammates. Well, that's exactly what he's done for so many years, right? And the variability and what he can do with the one touch, but what he can also do on the dribble and what he can do in three or four touches. You know, he he does all those things so well that you never know what he's going to do. Like there's a couple of times where he's standing up a defender and he's he they're both just standing there and he's just like moving his foot <laughs> right above the ball like but you don't know what I'm going to do. But I'm you laughing, don't know what I'm I'm laughing do. listeners, because Jordan's like bobbing her head side to side <laughs> like a bobblehead. 
But you know what I'm talking about. You know exactly what I'm talking about. He He's like teasing them because he's so quick in those first few steps, whether it is to get a one touch pass or flick off, whether it's to get after someone on a dribble or to literally stall a defender. He's he just pro- provides such variability in his, the way that he can attack. Overall, I don't think this was Orlando City's best attacking performance. They get the 1-0 win, but over the entire course of 90-plus minutes, they only had two shots on target. They didn't generate a ton of high-quality attacking chances. They they moved the ball better in the first half than the second, but I think we covered why that was with the defensive change from the Montreal impact. Uh-huh. But you're right, Jordan. I think the goal was inevitable with the way they were moving the ball, by and large, and moving it into the attacking half. Yeah. Can I say one more thing about Montreal before... We go. Please. Because we won't talk about them again, right? Yeah. For a few weeks, at least. Um, I thought it was really interesting. Montreal and attack. So even when they had changed, it almost looked like they were playing with one central attacker. And then imagine this, like an umbrella. If you open an umbrella from that attacker out towards the middle of the field, all the players around that central attacker were like in this umbrella shape. There was no one in those pockets of space inside in those connecting pockets, right? Like right by the, the sick in six in those red zones to help connect. And it was like Montreal didn't put anybody in those spaces until they connected wide and tried to create um, some kind of combination on the wing. And I just, I think it's too slow. It's too slow of a buildup. It's too monotonous, just swinging the ball around that like open umbrella kind of looking shape. And it didn't pay off. And I don't think it will until they put players in those pockets of space where then they make the defense for whatever team that they're playing on decide, okay, do I step? Do I shift? Do I have to go mark that player who's in this area of space? And I don't know whose zone it really is. They're not going to be successful in attack. Well, we're not seeing any more of the Montreal impact. As you said, Orlando City will go on to play the winner of LAFC and the Seattle Sounders. That game's going to be fun. Whatever happens with the other side of that bracket. I know. To get right? to the Orlando game. When is that? Game. Monday? I don't know. I think it's Monday. Okay, we're going with Monday. Yeah, Soon, let's coming go with up it. in a few days at the very least. <laughs> on to the second game of tonight, and that's the Philadelphia Union's 1 0 win over the New England Revolution. All right, I'm going to start with Philly. Is that cool? That's great with me. Okay, so a lot of talk about Philly. They play a 4-4-2. We hear it all the time. We talk about it all the time. (laughs) We talk about it all the time. I actually, in the first half, it didn't really look like they played a 4-4-2. Alejandro Bedoya, as that right-sided midfielder, played a lot like a winger, I would say, in a lot of instances. And what I was noticing of Philly is they would get... All of their central midfielders, uh, Martinez, Aronson, Bedoya, and even Montero into one half of the field. If you cut it down the middle, um, hot dog style, you know, long ways. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> they would get all of their midfielders on one side of the field and Bedoya would be almost like a winger out there on the, the wing with, with Gaddis. And they did this for a couple of reasons. One, they're just trying to overload that space, right? And with Aronson and his ability to cut in um, and find those little pockets between a lot of the times, between the two center forwards, they could find him in in those overloaded spaces. But then also, 
you isolate Wagner on the far side. So I understand iso- like getting everybody over so you can isolate, but there was nobody to switch the point of attack. Martinez would get so sucked over. Montero would get su- so sucked over. So I feel like in the first half, it was really hard for Philadelphia to look like they were that balanced midfield of that 4-4-2 when they didn't have that outlet pass to help them get to the other side. It's funny that you focused on the union part of that midfield battle because I was watching the Revs in that instance to see how okay. they were defending the diamond because yeah. Taylor Twelman said it a bunch on the broadcast and I was wondering it in the lead up to this game. How did the Revolution defend with their two midfielders in that 4-4-2, their two central midfielders against the union's diamond? I thought they did great. They did. And I, I dug back. I watched some clips back after seeing the first half to try to find out why. And this is sort of what I ended up with. Okay. It's... It's not quite man-marking, but the Revs spent a lot of time with their entire squad, especially the front six, devoting attention to the Union's midfield diamond. Mm-hmm. A lot of times it was Gustavo Bo, if not man-marking, a lot of times blocking off the passing angles into Jose Martinez at the six. Then it's Zahibo tracking Aronson a lot. That one was almost man-marking in that matchup between the six and the ten for the Union. It was Kellen Rowe on Montero or sometimes shading into the middle to help with Martinez. And when that would happen, Buchanan would pick up Montero out wide. Then on the Bedoya side, which you covered, Bedoya was wide so much of the time. And that might have been to try to clear out space for his midfielders to move. But that also allowed Pena to stick to him and almost man-mark him on that side as well. Uh This is the kind of stuff, it it didn't lend to exciting first-half soccer. There wasn't a lot of great ball movement. It was slow. It was sticky. But this is the kind of stuff that gets me jazzed, right? It's it's a smart defensive setup from Bruce Arena to, to tell his guys, hey, your main responsibility is to not let these midfielders do almost anything. Man mark them if you have to, block off passing angles, devote attention to them, and it worked. It worked at least for the first 45 minutes. I think they did a really good job not, you know, I didn't notice specifically what you were saying about the man marking, but I did notice the wingers were those outside players in the 4-2-3-1 for New England, tucking in on the weak side to help try to even out the numbers in the midfield, right? Which is exactly what you're supposed to do to try to help. One, if you're defending, you're trying to keep the ball on one side of the field where your numbers are, right? And I think that they did a really good job of that. And then it allowed the outside back to then step up. If the ball was on the left side, Buchanan could tuck all the way in and occupy a lot of the time where Montero was and then it allowed for the outside back for New England to step on the outside back for Philadelphia if need be if the ball did switch because it was a 2v4 up top right it's not like New England didn't have the ability to let go of an outside back to get pressure on um, the outside back for Philly that was driving forward the revolution were solid defensively in that first half And then the second half starts, and they start to turn it up a little bit offensively as well. They begin to be more aggressive in attacking transition moments. The front four starts to create and rotate and find space in possession. And then it's strange because it's the Union who get the goal. It's the 63rd minute. It's against the run of play. The Revs lose the ball in an attacking transition moment. Wagner picks it up, plays it forward to Montero, who then plays probably the best pass of the game, maybe the Mm. best pass of the day. A little bit of quality infused into the second half. Montero plays that chipped ball over the top to Santos, who smashes it home with his left foot to make it 1-0. It's a nice goal, Jordan. It's a really nice goal. When did I talk about this? (laughs) Like we're going to remember the game. Right, right. But losing the ball short, 
there are certain instances where you can't lose the ball short. If you're going to lose the ball, you have to overhit it. And that transition from New England is exactly the example. Gustavo Bo and Buchanan cannot lose the ball short there. Gustavo Bo is better off just clipping the ball into space beyond the back line and letting Buchanan run at it. Because then what's the worst thing that can happen there? Okay, the revs push up, they get situated and they can remark on, you know, get back in their spot and not have such a quick transition from Philly. Instead, you lose it short and right away, if you don't, if you don't transition fast, you're going to get punished and Philadelphia is a team that can do that so distinctively. And they did it with a plan and a purpose and they beat New England to every spot there. They did. It's it's a great run from Santos that takes advantage of by not quite reacting quick enough. It starts with mm-hmm. Bo. The first mistake is with Bo and then or or Bo and Buchanan, I suppose. And then it's by who doesn't turn, doesn't move back to defend quickly enough. And that allows Santos to run into that space for Montero to play the ball. Yes, if the ball isn't good enough, it doesn't matter. Yeah. But the fact that by was slightly out of position. I mean, soccer has evolved to the point where if you're not moving so quickly in those transition moments, attacking transition, defensive transition, you're hurting your team. And oh, it's difficult absolutely. because the margins are so small. And I almost feel for by here because it's a minuscule mistake. Still, that's the kind of difficulty. That's the kind of margin that you deal with as a player in these type of moments. And it's Montero and Santos who take advantage of it. Yeah, it's a game of moments of decision making under pressure when you're tired all those things. It's hard. It's so difficult, right? Um, and you're right. They just, Philly did a better job. Better job. We're going to see the union one more time. The Revs are yeah. done. Bruce Arena picks up a red card after this game for Ooh, whoopsies, some right? extracurriculars. But we're going to see more of Philadelphia. Unfortunately, not the case for the Revs. Yeah. I have to say a couple things, though. I, I liked Vania better centrally. Uh, towards the end of the game, I felt like he did a, a better job for the Revs. Um, and then the last thing I do want to say, because I know we've talked about goalkeeper distribution. How bad did you want the Revs to score when Turner just pinged a ball to the <laughs> far side? Like that was an 85 yard yard ball. We can add that one to the Westberg and Bingham uh, top two that we have so far this season. Oh, my gosh. And they nearly, I mean, they nearly got a good chance on goal. I think I got toe-poked right right before the shot. But, like, I I was going, oh, my gosh, score this. Score this. It would (laughs) have been such a good goal. But didn't make it happen. Didn't make it happen. Jordan, we dug into these two games. Orlando City moving on. The Philadelphia Union moving on. We're moving on. Tomorrow, we will be back with two more game analyses, analyzing the next two games of these knockout rounds. Yeah, it feels good. Let's go. I like the knockout rounds. It's exciting. I like the two games. We can really sink our teeth into these games and analyze the goals and the players and other tactical takeaways that we had. We're going to be back and doing more of it the rest of this week. Yeah, we will. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening, everybody. 